0: Welcome to this week. Next week from Group M, I'm Brian Weiser.
1: And I'm Kate Scott Dawkins.
0: And uh, yet again, we return to another week with uh, the unfortunate continuing conflict uh, with war in Ukraine, uh, certainly on top of mind for uh, for us and I'm sure for many of you. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's uh, unfortunately no immediate end in sight. Uh, and the consequences are going to play out in ways that we still can't fully anticipate. But, you know, one of the things that I, I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago was energy costs. Um, Kate, how, how much is gas where you are?
1: Uh, it's definitely a high $5 range, if not tipping over into six in some places. Um, I mean, I think California regularly tops the uh, the leaderboards, as it were, in terms of gas prices
0: yeah we're uh, we're definitely in that zone as well uh, in in oregon here uh you know but it's interesting i mean if, if before you you joined this team and, and you'd heard about high oil prices high gas prices would you have assumed that uh that, that that would have a negative impact on the advertising industry
1: i mean i think you assume it just has a drag on a lot of different industries don't you because people talk about it as having such import um in terms of uh global markets and also people's pocketbooks
0: yeah i know and i don't know i wonder if if if, um people who who i don't know set the tone on these things have like these scarred memories of the lineups of the 1970s i i don't know i wasn't i don't think i was even born when that happened and i don't even know what it was like in canada uh, when, um, uh, you know, the gas lineups uh, images of the 1970s were dominant. But, yeah, I definitely hear a common view that high gas prices, high energy prices must be negatively correlated um, with advertising. But you know what I did? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm guessing it involved data.
0: It it probably did. Um, yeah, so – we took our data from, uh, this year, next year, which, um, which is, you know, advertising data for countries around the world. We have 51 or so countries or markets where the data is internally consistent for a 20 year plus period. And from 1999 to 2019 mm-hmm. compared the cost of Brent crude, the changes in cost of Brent crude with the changes in growth rates in advertising, right? Okay, makes sense? Yep, so okay. far so good. Right, and if you had to guess what the uh, correlation is, well, what would you guess it is? The median country correlation of 51 markets, the, the R Are squared.
1: You, you want like an actual R value. Uh, yeah. No, less than less than
0: 0.3. You are right. Ding, ding, ding. Um, That's where we should have like sound effects. Probably Uh, 0.18 0.18, but positive. It's a positive number. And here's the crazy thing, right? Three markets of 51. Was there a negative correlation? You know, R not R squared. Mm -hmm. Uh, Only three markets. Uh, Ireland, Malaysia, Argentina right
1: no. Oh,
0: Argentina, I'm sorry right yeah. Argentina right. but the point and barely barely. the point is that um advertising is actually positively correlated with uh, changes in in uh, oil prices. So um I don't know I you, you saw my my thinking uh, my some of my notes about this, so we're we're kind of cheating here. but did anything stand out to you about, you know why this might be?
1: Well, so I did some uh, quick looking myself, what I thought, and at least, you know, in my own personal world, as soon as gas prices went up I said, well, that's we're not using the, uh, you know, the, the, the Honda anymore. We're going to use the electric car for all of our driving. Um, and so it made me think again about when we talked about input costs going up and people looking for alternatives or buying alternatives and um you know, I went looking for whether EV searches were up but basically mm. at the same time, you know, like and? Our, our EV advertising, you know, trends going up. Um, they are at an all-time high in the U.S., like a 400% increase according to Google Trends um, in both Germany and the U.S., for instance. Um, not as high as, uh, well, it's gas prices, sorry, the search for that. Um, and then search trends for EVs in the U.S. in the past year second highest over the last five years Um, wow so yeah
0: well although is that higher than I don't know who's a celebrity du jour right now I wonder if uh that would be an interesting correlation you know changes in search searches for Kim Kardashian and energy prices is there a negative correlation positive I don't know you could find some really interesting correlations because um let's come back to correlation and causation in model building later on Uh, i think that that might be relevant for a deep dive right yep Uh, okay but but here's the crazy thing right higher energy prices higher oil prices gas prices tend to have this disproportionate impact but do you know uh and you you kate now are representing the listener uh here when i'm asking you this rhetorically um do you know Uh, What percentage of consumer expenditures uh, gas represents?
1: Uh, I don't off the top of my head.
0: 2% in the United States.
1: Okay.
0: And about the same in Europe. 2%. Yeah. Energy prices in total are about 4% of consumer expenditures. So 50% higher prices would have a 2% impact. And we can point to the 2007-8 period where uh massively higher prices were actually related to a a strong economy and that's the bigger point especially in oil producing countries higher energy prices can actually be stimulative not negative so that's uh that was one of the things I looked at this week um what did you spend time looking at this week
1: well we talked last week about um the fact that it was International Women's Day this week March 8th and said we were going to do some um investigation some looking into the diversity on the boards of some of the biggest ad sellers um so i started with our list of the top 25 that we use for this year next year um and went through and you know looked at the diversity of their boards um it's it's okay i'd say some markets not as impressive as others um the median including Chinese companies and Chinese companies tend to have um, boards that are more dominated by men, at least in this research and in this industry. So, the median, including those Chinese companies, was 36% female boards um, across 44.
0: Including the Chinese companies. What about excluding the Chinese companies? uh,
1: Well, the median was about the same. The average does change. The average, including Chinese companies, was 30% female. Um, and excluding Chinese companies,
0: 34%. Okay, so there's some inclusion, but it's clearly not parity. Uh, did you find any commonalities between those where um, maybe women were more uh, closer to 50% or above?
1: Yeah, we'll we'll come on to that. There were a couple of other interesting things. Um, I mean, there were some where the boards were zero percent female. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> Several uh, Chinese companies, also Globo, actually. Um, and Brazil,
0: Brazil-based Globo, zero, zero board members at Globo.
1: Zero, you... according to my research. Yep. Um, wow. And Discovery is only eight percent. That was sort of the lowest of the big.
0: Eight percent, meaning one. at uh, two out of twelve. Two of twelve. Okay, so that is not exactly representative do we know what the new discovery warner board's composition is like
1: i need to look at that the pro forma one i think they have really some information but it wasn't in my stats here um i think the other interesting thing is the number of female executives so uh female ceos only three out of 44 or seven percent
0: yeah you know you know I've got to say that one of the bigger problems uh, I, I've observed, and and just speaking as an analyst or a former analyst uh, on Wall Street, uh, there's a really unfortunate and interesting form of bias when it comes to Wall Street events. if you you are an analyst and you want to have diverse representation speaking at conferences, but companies only allow CEOs or CFOs to speak, right. You end up with a situation where the only people speaking are men yeah except where you've got if you've got a situation where only three of 44 ceos are, are female so that's uh which were the companies with the um uh, females so
1: this is where we'll come on to a hypothesis i had so itv uh female their board is 50 percent female um c4 the female CEO, 38% of their board is female, and then um Naver, the South Korean um, internet or digital company, female CEO. Although the board is only 17% female, she's the only female on their board, but she is also the chief executive.
0: That's arguably more surprising in this sense because I mean I think some of the numbers we've seen are lower in in Asian markets, and uh, so female C- CEO at a, an important uh, digital media platform is pretty important.
1: So i did wonder i added i mean nordic entertainment isn't on the list of top 25 but i added nordic entertainment um and itv and and then some of the other uh european players like rtl and and Teophon. um out of interest because we've been talking about uh, their sort of long-term competitive strategy and and you know competing against the global us media owners who are expanding and and really pouring money into global content um so i wondered if the Companies with more female board members were the ones who we would also say were sort of making the most um, brave, I guess, <laughs> steps in terms of um, content production, spending, and and um, a global focus. Eh,
0: yeah, it's hard I don't, to say. Really.
1: Nordic Entertainment is is fifty percent male, female. Um, but Teofon is actually the top sixty four percent female in terms of their board. Interesting. Um, but not not uh, really devoting i guess the competitive shares to to content and and global production so
0: oh no that's really interesting well the other thing that that I I mean this is the thing that stands out to me right as okay I'm a white male um but I I observe that if you see a company that doesn't have um shall we say more representation it always leads me to wonder and as an analyst it leads me to wonder if you're only picking other white dudes on a board, or if your board only has other white dudes, uh, it does suggest that perhaps you're not uh, looking for a broad array of talent. It means there must be something wrong in terms of your process, uh, because it's it can't be possible that the best people for a given board are all or disproportionately white male. Like it's just statistically not possible when you yeah. look at it at an industrial scale right
1: And the other interesting thing um in some of the companies I'd say especially European was how often the same names appear either mm. across company boards or within one company you know these kind of family run like JC Deco or um like the Berlusconi name definitely um that crops up across a few boards
0: Interesting. Also, I guess there's another different dynamic when you look at um, family uh, controlled companies uh, as well, because then it's just a, it's just a I mean, I guess there it's like it's a family business. The family's deciding what they want to do. And if you're an investor, you're just choosing to join in with whatever they do. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but I think it is different when it comes to a, a, a non-family controlled company like they're really it, 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 it. I, as an analyst, interpret the lack of diversity as a lack of frankly doing a good job of fostering making sure that the company is getting a wide array of opinions and valued viewpoints if that's if that's what's needed although i i, I also see the value of a, a company where you're going to have a monolithic person who just basically controls the company and the the board's just a rubber stamp anyways in which case it doesn't matter arguably who's on the board i don't know that that's a that's not a good way to build a business for multiple decades but I, I mean, think we've hey, seen
1: failures of that model um I can think of one company are particular. you suggesting
0: <laughs> that when your singular people control companies and basically have all the voting rights that it doesn't always end well is that what you're suggesting uh,
1: that is what I'm suggesting yes
0: indeed indeed well, um, ITV at least, uh, you know, they, they did make, as we talked about last week, they did make some um, good progress towards uh, their streaming business. And it maybe not all the way where we think they probably need to get to, but going in the right direction by investing more heavily in this ITVX initiative.
1: Yeah, well, at least it wasn't ITV Plus, you know, something different.
0: Well, that was Hub Plus, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're all with the plus. I mean, just, you know, we we did come up with our own term called Connect TV Plus here, because, well, why not, right? So we're okay with pluses, aren't we?
1: Sure, sure. Why not? Um, what else? You were uh, listening in or, or following the um, TMT conference this week as well, weren't you?
0: Yes, indeed. Morgan Stanley hosted um, uh, an event. And th- this was significant for me or in my mind, because I don't know. First of all, where was the last place you traveled for work? When was the last time you traveled anywhere for work?
1: Um, probably down to LA, I think. Um, okay. Burbank, yep.
0: But pre-pandemic. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I still haven't traveled since the pandemic started. Oh, hopefully soon. Um, but the last travel I did was approximately march i don't know two three of 2020 to san francisco where i spoke at the morgan stanley conference uh two years ago and it was such a surreal experience because uh you know we all knew this thing was coming those of us who went were like we're we're doing our elbow bombs uh greeting thing in all sorts of different ways right we all knew that it was um we were just hoping for the best being where we were, right? But the point is, that was the last time a lot of people in the investment community were at a physical event. And this was, I would, I think, safe to say, possibly the first uh, full-scale, media-focused investor event to return in person. And so a lot of the world's largest media companies, CEOs or CFOs, participated and And um, I don't know, I thought there was a fair amount of of news. Maybe the biggest piece that a lot of people focused on was um, related to Netflix. Mm, Yep. Did you hear what what, uh, their CFO said?
1: I did, I did. They said, never say never when it regards ads. Is that right?
0: All right. Now, a few people have written me and said, Brian, are you about to eat your mask? Because I have said... Uh, if Netflix, when Netflix sells ads, I will eat my mask. If yeah. they sell it now, again, I'm going to dip it in chocolate to be clear. If that does happen. Right.
1: And this is this is at least under the tenure of, of Reed Hastings as well. Is that right?
0: That's the thing under Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos. I have argued Netflix will not sell conventional ads. And so it's one thing for now, the context matters here, right? Spencer Newman, who's CFO, has been there for three years, I think, four years. Uh, he's not. Oh, full respect, I, I think a lot of people think highly of him, but Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings run the company. They have been so clear on their opposition to advertising. It would be way more significant if they echo his statement, never say never, right? Let's go back two years ago to, and and we can read their annual report. Hastings wrote uh, um, pretty detailed about why they don't want to sell ads and why they won't sell ads. And, you know, on the earnings call of uh, 4Q19, he talked, Hastings talked endlessly about why they won't sell ads, how it would change their organizational structure, how it would make them a much more complicated business to run. They don't even have much data. They don't track data for this sort of thing they don't have a sales organization this is not a thing that they just start doing even if they decided today to do it, it's a multi-year process right
1: it doesn't just spin up overnight yeah
0: no unlike disney now to be clear it's not that much of a shocker for disney as we learned last week right where they said okay disney plus is going to have an ad support here it'll be small it won't be that big of a thing it's not that hard to add it on and it's not that much of a shocker because you know at the end of the day they they were trying to work with brands more aggressively from earliest days it's 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 not going to be that big of a deal but but for netflix it would be a huge deal for them to do this and it just doesn't it just doesn't seem realistic but what do yeah. you think? What do you think our? Co- I mean, you've heard from our colleagues on this. What do you think they they think about this?
1: I mean, I think there's uh, interest, right, from people who are used to seeing declines in, in inventory, or um, you know, groups of people who are harder to reach in terms of audience for their clients, right? They're interested in finding new and um, you know, additive ways to to reach those audiences. Um, saying so there's some, you know, willful optimism there. Um, That's a
0: good word. Willful optimism is the thing. When I hear people say, of course, Netflix will sell ads, but they ignore that Netflix is cash flow positive. They ignore that Netflix is gap and cash flow positive in the U.S. and mature markets. They ignore that. They. It's, it's interesting. Spencer Newman said something to the effect of it's not like we have a, a religious objection uh, to ads. Actually, I believe they do, at least last I checked, they do have a religious objection to ads.
1: Well, and so far the market's borne price increases for subscriptions, right? I think there was just yep. a, additional uh, um, increases what Ireland and somewhere else in, in Europe last week. So um, as long as that bears out and as long as they continue to produce good content, I think that that model
0: will sustain. The, the other thing I'd say, yeah, that's that's fair. The other thing I'd say is, you know, the, he he ended this this comment, um, a pretty extensive comment, talking about why they don't sell ads and why they focused on not selling ads and why they focus on subscriptions. I mean, I, I, just to read the full quote, right? It's not like we have religion against advertising, to be clear, what we're focused on is building, optimizing for long-term revenue. We want to do it in a way that's a great experience for our members. So we lean into consumer experience, consumer choice, and what's great for our creators and storytellers. So if at some point we determine something that we have uh, the right to kind of play within the space and it meets those dimensions then great, but it's not something in our plans right now. We think we have a great model and subscription business and it goes on and then says, never say never, but advertising is not in our plan. Okay. The other point to this is, um, uh, Kate, do you, do you, uh, are you a James Bond fan? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I've watched some of them. Didn't Sean Connery, did he not say something like in 1971, never would he play Bond again? I have no idea. Well, apparently it was 12 years later before the movie never say never again came out. Right. So, okay. 12 years. If if Reed Hastings Ted Sarandos are still there within the next twelve years they they sell ads again I've got my I've got a, a chocolate ganache I'm thinking of that would go wonderfully with with a paper mask it it's um, probably the Allen DuCasse um, vintage is probably oh. best yeah you know just on a little square a little square paper uh, and I will eat it on this program
1: oh I believe you. <laughs>
0: uh there there was other stuff at the conference though believe it or not
1: okay what what else caught your eye
0: well actually the one thing that that caught my eye that wasn't said um you know fox's uh lachlan murdoch was uh was interviewed and um you know they, they they he made some you know relevant points about how they basically excused themselves from the streaming wars uh which you know is core to fox's strategy um you know as he said uh, we're enjoying the show we're not spending billions of dollars uh trying to chase the fourth position in that spot um even though I would argue that that probably puts them in a weaker position uh but what wasn't said was any comments on the ongoing defamation lawsuit between Fox and Smartmatic and Dominion voting systems it, it still is remarkable to me how you know again the uh the outright lies uh that have been stated on Fox News that relate to you know the election fraud and, and in this specific case the, the claims that these voting systems actually rigged the election Fox facing a 2.7 billion billion lawsuit from smartmatic 1.6 billion from Dominion voting system so this week there was news where a judge uh denied Fox's attempts to dismiss a case and it's moving forward both of these cases are moving forward right. and uh, do, do you think this yeah. sounds like a big deal right well, yeah, I'm sure there are
1: some pretty hefty provisions on the the books at the moment.
0: Well, they're not. That's the thing. Ah, okay. Ah, yeah, exactly. And, and so here's the thing. I don't think enough people are aware of. These numbers can sound outlandish, right? Like billions of dollars of uh, lawsuit. But most people don't seem to know that Fox has actually paid over a billion dollars over the last 10 years in relation to the hacking gate that News Corp did in the early 2000s
1: oh yeah well that was I mean did that get big press I, mean, I was in the UK for some of the the court proceedings that happened there but did that get big press in the US this was it around did, It um, got some, the,
0: but ev- every quarter if you look in their 10 Q's and 10 K's they're every quarter it's tens of millions of dollars of charges so the point is that is it crazy to think that there could be a multi-billion dollar uh cost incurred absolutely and so that's something to that was not said at the conference but it's always worth keeping in mind what's not said as well as what was um the other thing that stood out to me uh Facebook uh gave an interesting disclosure um talking about uh that the, the co- impact of Russia uh 1.5 of revenue from Russia okay did that sound surprising to you
1: um no I mean we also talked about it being about one uh, percent of just total global ad revenue um across all uh sellers so i guess that feels in line
0: Yeah. so it's 1.7 billion dollars and again the the specific phrasing was um russian advertisers and advertisers targeting russian users um so i mean my take was it's proportionally a little bit high to say it's 1.7 billion dollars of advertising meeting that definition um boy Who would have known there was a market for letting Russian advertisers buy ads outside of Russia on Facebook? Um, That's uh, kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. There uh, (laughs) could be plenty to dig into there for another... Another podcast.
0: Indeed. But one of the things that I, again, a lot of people don't pick up on uh, that I thought is worth noting because of the way that Facebook discloses their regional revenue in their 10 Ks and 10 Qs. Again, not enough people read the Qs and the Ks. You read the Qs and the Ks now, don't you? Always. Always. All right. Um, They list their biggest markets. And they've got a, a, a way they phrase it very specifically, and you compare it over time, and it's you, you actually pick up some interesting things. So now we could infer that because Russia is not listed among the largest markets that they do include, we know now with certainty that in Thailand, which is listed as a, one of their larger markets, Thailand has to have more than $1.7 billion of ad revenue last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, right? helpful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: We already knew we could roughly approximate, you know, Canada, you can get to because they disclose North America and they disclose the U S there. Therefore we know Canada, uh, we can relatively size Australia because Australia is listed among the biggest markets. You know, there are similarities between Australia and Canada. Brazil is in the mix on that group. And what's interesting again, like Japan has been on that list, but was knocked off last year. Mm -hmm. Vietnam was on that list, but was knocked off last year. Um, so you can do some interesting market sizing things when you get these sorts of disclosures. Yeah, cool. Anyways, so that's, uh, those were the highlights I picked up from uh, from the Morgan Stanley Conference.
1: Okay. Um, we were gonna talk this week, there was a conversation that came up around how advertiser ROI b- models are, are built.
0: And model building is something we, we spent a fair amount of time thinking about around here at uh the this week next week this year next year department of group m <laughs> yeah, what, what stood bit. out to you from what stood out to you from the conversation about uh, model building and rois
1: um i think partially around um you know what they do and don't take into account really primarily i mean yes it is about uh bottom line. And ultimately, if you want to take a very simplistic view of marketing ROI, it's about direct investment and sales. Um, But what else could be taken into account around consumer experience or sustainability? Um, There are all kinds of other metrics that uh, might be valuable over the longer term than a a short-term direct return.
0: This was an interesting point you raised, I think, which was that to the extent that a bad consumer experience where an ad runs how is that accounted for in a model and the answer is it's not usually right yeah the other thing that's okay so a few things that stood out to me um and again we we know we have a a listener base some of whom are in the analyst community and or follow um public companies Uh, this is something I had to harp on as an analyst covering stocks the way in which financial professionals define ROI is often not the same way that advertising practitioners define ROI right have you seen, I don't know have you seen this I mean like the, the the have you seen the goals that campaigns have like trying to drive like um I don't know it could be uh the cost per click it could be cost per whatever optimizing ROI against those sorts of metrics is not the same thing as driving actual return on investment at a corporate level
1: yeah yeah and there are certainly uh, I think more attempts to drive uh metrics like brand lift that aren't so short-term focused as a click right,
0: right. and then we're not uh, how do we account for time horizons so I was uh, actually speaking uh, speaking to a very large uh, auto manufacturer uh client uh, earlier today and uh was relaying how i think we we, we've talked about my uh my tesla deposit right um who knows if i'll actually uh actually buy the car whenever it arrives um but but the the point of this is my perception of of auto brands may have been formed when i was a kid how is that accounted for in a model that people will have perceptions based on word of mouth or based on um you know, intangible things that are just not captured, capturable in a model.
1: Well, and how do models uh, evolve to convince you know new types of quote unquote consumers like bots, right? If I'm mm. asking my digital assistant or my smart home devices to order something for me, how are our models you know dealing with the fact that those are not rational, emotional uh, beings that do have opinions formed from childhood?
0: Well, wouldn't this be interesting? We get to the place where you have a self-refilling uh, consumer product, uh, a refrigerator looking for a water filter, uh, an espresso maker looking for um, a, a pod, and that it makes a decision based on what you've pre-programmed as a set of rules. Then I guess, I guess that if, if if everyone had the same rules, I guess that you could create a model that would try to optimize how you sold to that bought No.
1: yeah well i think this gets really interesting this is a bit now outside of the roi model i guess um but yeah what happens when those rules are set how do you encourage brand switching um you know what is what does that look like if you're not going into a store and seeing packaging or seeing something based on shelf height um you know what if you have a subscription and you're not watching tv ads for coffee what does that look mm-hmm. like is it is it based on uh, offering promotional prices to the you know smart home uh, appliances they're reordering that it i don't think um a lot of advertisers have really worked through the the progression of of how this might go
0: no, I think so. I mean, and by the way, we're not we're we're not trying to say that models are a bad thing and that trying to calculate what ROIs are is a bad thing, but I think that sometimes I think the people who don't develop the products put too much weight in what they mean versus what they don't mean, what they capture versus what they don't capture and just how subject they are to improvement. I mean, every model could be improved essentially, right?
1: Yeah, oh, oh, definitely. <laughs> we spend a lot of time trying to improve our own uh, internal models.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what's uh, what's coming up uh, next week uh, for you?
1: Um, next week we'll see. I mean, we're obviously continuing to watch um, global news and and developments. Um, we are. Uh, finalizing content in the next 10, which is a report that'll be coming out later in the month. Um, so those are the things that I'm sort of watching and and looking at. How about you?
0: Well, you know, as uh, earnings season comes to a close around the world, you know, finalizing some of the data uh, or estimates around how, how big some markets uh, around the world grew um 2021 but uh actually what i'm really looking forward to doing is uh i've got a data set of what i call the digital endemics right the 40 or 50 or so companies that are maybe app-based businesses a lot of them are smaller newer public companies that, that they they file their end of year data late and uh, i'm really excited actually to see how uh i get excited about simple things that plus chocolate um to see how they uh, all end the year um in terms of their contribution to the advertising industry
1: well, and we'll get new concentration numbers of uh, media sellers as well, which will be a good once so the last that report. That will be
0: interesting. Yeah, just as a teaser on this one, right? We've calculated and we wrote about it in this year, next year, in the uh, June 2021 edition that the top 17 companies outside of China account for about 65% of all ad revenue across all media. That number is probably going to be around 70% for 2021. I mean – any bet Anyone wanna bet a better, more precise number?
1: Drum roll, please. Um yeah, seventy. Should I go higher or lower? Seventy six.
0: Wow. Will you use your mask if uh if you no don't, uh, goodness no? no you could dip it in <laughs> mayonnaise? <laughs> <That's> how gross. <laughs> All right. Well un, until until then, I think uh, it's been that's been this week next week. Thanks for listening.
1: This week next week is hosted by me, Kate Scott Dawkins, and Brian Weezer. Our producer is Jared Bayman. Our showrunner is Sam Weston. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com.